Welcome to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Paul Exner has dedicated his life to the practice and teaching of ocean sailing. He is a coach and a mentor to those he takes on sailing expeditions, and he sails out of the big island of Hawaii on a boat he knows inside and out because he built it himself from a bare hull. Paul is lucky to have his boat and his business because he and his family nearly lost everything when Hurricane Irma hit the island of Tortola in the British Virgin Islands, where they used to live. The devastation was so complete that Paul decided to resettle his family and his business to Hawaii. In this week's show, Paul and I talk about that transition, the difficulty of starting anew, sailing with kids, and the wonders of sailing in Hawaii. Enjoy! I'm Paul Exner. I am a professional sailor. I have a business called Modern Geographic Sailing, which has been a pretty much an idea and a passion of mine going way back to probably 1976, since I was 13 years old growing up in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And I've had this dream to immerse myself in sailing and actively pursue it as a technical art since then. I've been drawing boats since then. Uh, the boat I built, Solstice, which I have here in Hawaii with me now, which I take on expeditions around Hawaii, uh, was really a dream born from way back when I was a kid growing up in Puerto Rico. My family had never been around the ocean. We were actually from the Midwest. And my dad got a job in San Juan, Puerto Rico in 1975. So he took the family out there. And my first exposure to the ocean was at 10 years old in San Juan. My dad said, hey, let's get a sailboat for the family. And we got a Hobie Cat, which was really popular on the beaches there. A lot of good Hobie sailors in that from those neck of the woods, so to speak. That's my Midwest side coming out, neck of the woods. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just started sailing on the ocean pretty hardcore without any chase boats or anything. Those are the good old days where you were pretty much self-reliant. I understand you used to take that Hobie out early in the morning by yourself before anybody else was awake? Yep. Pretty much my entire apartment complex would be asleep. And I'd have to, as a little kid, I have to carry my sail and the boom and the rudders down to the boat like before the sun came up, rig it, and I'd shove off as the sun was coming up because the wind was just a tick lighter in the early mornings where we were living. And then I would sail around until the breeze picked up, and then I came in when there were more people around in case I, you know, had a capsize or something. And was this with your your parents' blessing, or did they not know that you were headed out? You know, it. Uh, they didn't know. They did well. They didn't know, and it didn't bother them. The only rules I really had in Puerto Rico that I can remember is I had to be home before dark. Like I was not allowed out after dark. Otherwise, like we were pretty much on the beach or the barrier reefs off the North Shore of Puerto Rico all day long. In fact, I can remember going all day without drinking water or eating food as a kid, just doing nothing but ocean work all day. <laughs> it was just insane. 
and we'd go to school. I went to school up in the mountains. Um, and then also I went to this really cool school on the point. It was right on the ocean where we had an elective. We used to go an hour and a half snorkeling in the middle of the school day on the barrier reefs and just do like little scientific experiments in this small little private school I went to. Mm. Um, so I've been immersed in the ocean since 10, you know, surfing, sailing, uh, skateboard background a little bit too. Uh, and then designing boats and building boats as a professional. What was it that drew you to the boating and the sailing? I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of things that you were into as a child there with the surfing and the snorkeling and you could have gone in many directions. What was it about being on the water in a sailboat? Yeah, good question. Because for a long time, people would say, hey, Paul, you're a sailor. And I go, no, man, I'm more into surfing than sailing. And then eventually it switched. I think what probably drew me to it was I I preferred the surfing growing up. Um, And sailing was something we did because it was popular uh, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, with the Hobie fleet there. Uh, But it was scary because it was in the ocean with the trade winds. So surfing, I actually felt I had a little more control over. But we moved to Annapolis, Maryland, my dad was transferred for work up there uh, when I was in ninth grade in high school. And in it was in Annapolis where we, we finally got a 25-foot sloop. for uh, We got a Capri 25, which is, you know, a Catalina-based boat from Bill Butler in California. And uh, that's when I think it was the geographic transition to Annapolis because that's where I went to high school was Annapolis, Maryland where we couldn't surf there, so we just got into the sailing more and more. Of course, sailing is a big part of Annapolis history, so we just kind of fell into it, and we were racing every weekend or just doing cruises up and down the Chesapeake. Uh, And that's probably more circumstance why I was drawn to the sailing. And how did Solstice come into your life, the boat that you're sailing now? Well, I was drawing boats, and I have all those drawings And I'm thinking about putting them out there somehow, but I'm going to write a whole piece around it. But I started drawing boats when I was a kid living in San Juan. And my dad and I were always talking about how full keel boats were the thing to have because that was a cool boat back in those days. And so I was drawing that aesthetic and understanding those principles, having never sailed one, but just drawing them. And I built models, too. I used to build models and test sail them in the pool. I test sailed some of them in the ocean, <laughs> little models. <laughs> That's great. And then it was just always my dream to go uh, sailing in the ocean and aboard a boat that I built myself. And way back then, I wanted my boat to kind of be like my business card in a way, like I could pull up to the dock and go, people would say, hey, man, you built that boat. It's like, yeah, this is is a cool thing I made, you know. I would say probably the most serious sailing influence I had would have been Robin Lee Graham, who wrote the book The Dove. Sure. I I know it well. It influenced my childhood greatly and my adult life. Yeah. I read that book, and and I was like, gosh, I want to do that, but I think I'm going to build the boat. Mm. And so that's the concept of solstice. And it wasn't until after I graduated from university that I began the actual project, uh, the solstice project. So I sourced out the Cape George 31 hull, let's see, in 1990. Uh, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And then I went and taught sailing for Steve Colgate in Florida. Okay. I was like, hey. You know, because I, I had been teaching sailing 
uh, in university very seriously at the Hoofer Sailing Club in Madison. And I even coached the UW sailing team and was a member of the UW sailing team doing collegiate sailing there for a while. But when I left college, literally my mom's like, what are you going to do when you graduate? Uh, this was a month or two before I graduated. And I opened Sail Magazine. I looked up Steve Colgate's phone number and I called him. And I got on the phone with the, the vice president, Tyler Pierce. And he said, yeah, come on down to Florida for an interview. And that's how I solved the problem with my mom. And she said, what are you going to do for work? I love it. Yeah. So uh. I went down there and then started the sailing career. And that's when I said, all right, I'm building this boat. When I was teaching for Steve, uh, which was a great experience. He has a very good formal way of teaching. One thing I'd say is the instructor I am now is nothing like the instructor I was when I graduated college working for Steve. I've been able to incorporate like a whole lifetime of adult experience since then. And is that where you started building Solstice? That is. Yeah, I saved. I literally saved every penny. I didn't go out to the bars. I didn't even order pizza. I, I would just go to the grocery store and save every penny. And I saved in six months on a salary of 12 grand a year. That's what I was making for Steve Colgate in 1990. Can you believe that? That's not even, is that even legal? (laughs) 12 grand a year. I was making teaching for Steve in 1990. Um, Didn't even have health insurance. Yeah. So I saved every penny. And then I was like, I'm buying this hull. And I did some research. I picked up, uh, Ferenc Matei's book from a bear hall that was in the local library at Captive Island in Florida. Uh-huh. And I was like, that sounds like a cool, cool concept. Build your own boat from a hull. That's going to save you time. And in that book is the Cape George 31. And having drawn boats as a kid, when I came to that page and I looked at that hull, I was like, that's it. Of course, In university, they taught us about due diligence. So then I looked at a bunch of other designs and talked to other builders, but I kept coming back to the Cape George 31. It's amazing how you can just fall in love with the the shape of a hull, isn't it? Oh, exactly. And and that's what it was. It was falling in love with that shape and the characteristics of it. It just seemed to me, as most people who love their boats, like, oh, this is it. I love my boat. You know, yeah. and still today when I get in a dinghy and motor away from it, I always look back and they say that's the sign of whether you like your boat or not. It must give you an advantage knowing your boat from the inside out. You know every crevice and every system. It is a really different perspective because I'm I'm looking at it from an owner, builder, designer, operator point of view. And to be able to go through all of those levels of of uh, awareness and presence because that you need both. You need to be aware of the design, the build, uh, the operation side, all of it. And now as I, as I coach people who come sailing with me, it's not just about the physical aspects of sailing, which I know very well, but it's about helping people decide between all the different parameters that they may choose from or try to live with when they buy a boat or design a lifestyle of sailing. And that's kind of what I've been doing. It's that I've been taking people out who are seriously interested in doing it for themselves. None of them build their own boats. Some of them will do refits, DIY refits, and very few of them get a boat like Solstice. 
Mm-hmm. I'm getting people into modern designs, Hansas, Bavarias, Lagoon Catamarans, Amels, everything you can imagine that might be a modern design. You know, even Morris, some some people that are buying used ones, all kinds of brands. Well, Solstice is 31 feet. Is that right? Do I have that right? Yep. There was a point in time where that was not considered a small boat, but I think today a lot of people would look at that and say, hmm, I don't know if I want something that size. Absolutely. What advice do you give along those lines? Well, I tell you, this is a very expensive 31-foot boat, and that is is one of the uh, detriments, modern detriments to its to its characteristics is that when you look at the amount of money you can spend, let's say you're buying a new boat, this Cape George 31 built at Cape George Marine Works in Port Townsend, mm-hmm. a new boat, I think is 350 mm. and it, and it takes a year and a half to build. It's just not practical. When you look at your disposable income and you say, well, I can spend 350 on this or I can spend 350 on that which is newer and has arguably a better resale value. You know, some of the new boats seriously have better resale values. And they're probably more what people are expecting from yachting today than than this classical traditional design. That doesn't bother me. I'm helping people get into the new designs. And because I built this boat, I'm forced to keep it. Like, I don't want to sell it. Right now, there's no other boat I really want to own. It's nice to be able to say that about your own boat because a lot of people (laughs) are already thinking about the next one 10 minutes after they've purchased the last boat. I know. I know. Yeah. And that's okay. That's okay. Because it's so hard to get into the lifestyle and know what you really want until you invest in it. When you get the boat in your lungs, like, you know, with the vapors and the fibers and everything, well, you know, it's a little more part of you. (laughs) That's right. Right. It really does. And you've taken this boat all over the world. This is a question I have for you. You you were um, chartering out of the BVIs, living in the BVIs with your family, British Virgin Islands. You were hit by Hurricane Irma and decided to move your life and your business to Hawaii. You did that about a year ago? Yeah. We left the British Virgin Islands in February of 2018, and we arrived in Hawaii late May 2018. So it was like two and a half months of travel through the canal and up Central America to Cabo, and then we left Cabo San Lucas for uh, Honokohau Harbor Big Islands, and that was a two and a half month journey. So I've been living in Hawaii now for a year and a month, running expeditions here and rebuilding our lives. And that story of surviving Irma is harrowing. I'm not going to go into that, but I'm going to suggest that people listen to the the interview you did with Andy Shell on his podcast, On the Wind, because you go into detail of hunkering down with your family and listening to the wind outside, and it's just... It's extraordinary to hear that story. So I advise, I really recommend people go and listen to that. But uh, I don't know, is there anything you want to add about that? You know, I think people, and even I look back at it now and I say, why did I put myself there at that time? Hmm. And because you're looking at it now, it's like we could have flown out of there. I think my family is the kind of family where when we have a home, we make it home and we're making Hawaii our serious home. Now we have no intentions of leaving Hawaii. And that was the same as Tortola. Why didn't I leave? And I would have to say that, you know, once you make a homestead, 
you know, we're not independently wealthy. We work to earn money. And I earn my money by helping people get into the lifestyle and sale. And it's not a, you don't make a lot of money doing this. So we didn't really have the means to pick up and go. It's, it's like we were homesteaders. We had to stay and fight. Like we didn't have enough cash to fly out of there, yeah. get back to a destroyed situation that was looted and everything. Like we, we were forced to dig in and survive. And we dug out and, and left and we're still making it happen. What was the tipping point when you said, we're going to rebuild somewhere else? The tipping point probably was the house we were in was destroyed mm-hmm. and had no no doors, no guttering, and we there was we live on cisterns. So there was no means of getting water, mm-hmm. no electricity. Uh, so we were literally living off of twelve volt batteries, solar panels, and alternator and um, inverters, buckets to pull water out of the cistern manually. Wow. There was mosquito, mosquitoes everywhere. People are like myself. I got um, prickly heat. You couldn't sleep at night. And there were insects everywhere. It was a cash society. There was, you know, unrest. There was exodus. I had to rebuild the boat because the boat was damaged somewhat. It was on land and hit by another mast. You had to buy groceries with cash. You had to stand in line for 45 minutes to an hour just to get into the door to to the grocery. Mm. Armed guards at the grocery store. Our tipping point would have been the move we were moving from that blown out house to a friend's house to live in it for a short period of time. And we used to have to drive across clothing on the roads, dead animals, rotting, burning stuff. It was a, an apocalypse mm-hmm. and, and it just wears on you. Your children were what age? Ava was one mm-hmm. and Owen would have been, I think he was four that, when Irma happened. That changes your perspective too. Yeah, weather plays a big part in your in your life with with this hurricane. But just sailing, I mean, you must you're always paying attention to the to the weather. And I've read some of your writing about heavy weather offshore. Has your experience in Irma changed how you approach heavy weather at all? Yeah, at no point, even when I go out for a short day sail, do I ever feel to the point where I can let down my guard about, you know, being responsible for the human life and assets while sailing, even on a day sail. It's just a tremendous responsibility that a captain would have. And weather plays an important role. And I think the devastation I've seen in in heavy weather, both on the ocean and the force of low pressures and knowing how unpredictable they are, even though we have tremendous ability with numerical models and, tremendous sensory equipment to feed info into those models it's still earth it's this planet rocketing through space around a star i mean it just we're getting better with forecasting but we're still living this tangible natural life as i look out the window of solstice right now i see water which is not really compressible and i see a gas around it air's atmosphere and the two interact it's sort of like having a view of something you can walk through and touch and be part of. And that's what I call the real world. You know, when I'm up doing this job, I have friends of mine that are, you know, running companies somewhere else. And they're like, Paul, when are you coming back to join the real world? And I'm like the real world, man, this is the real world. Yeah. So. <laughs> Doesn't get more real, especially when you're in the moment and you're getting hit in the face by either that water or that air. <laughs> uh 
Yeah, you may have recently read my post um, about the Ali Nui Haha Channel Crossing here. And it was, we just finished that a week ago, or maybe five days ago it was, something like that. Very heavy weather crossing. And it was for the first time in my life, I had so much salt blasted me in the face that my face hurt, physically hurt. Like my eyebrows had salt caked and dried on them. And it was really quite painful, actually. Tell us a little bit about sailing in Hawaii. I'm sure it's different than the Caribbean, and I'm sure it's different than even here in San Francisco Bay. For those who are curious, those California sailors who want to come out and do some sailing in Hawaii, tell us what the experience is like there. Hawaii is off, it's off the hook. It's bomber as a place. It's, it's, it falls within the tropical zone like the Caribbean does. But it's so deep into the Pacific that it's rarely affected by any type of continental anomalies in its weather. Hawaii is more susceptible to cold fronts coming down from the Aleutian Islands, you know, propagated by the jet stream and uh, what polar weather is doing. So while it can be tropical sometimes, we're also highly susceptible to Pacific Ocean unique frontal systems. And then, of course, we've got low pressures and tropical waves coming from Central America, 2,500 miles away, that come in at the low latitudes. And then you've got this frontal weather coming in from the high high latitudes. They all mix and they interact. But then the mountains and the islands themselves and how it affects the sailing around here are really tricky. Big Island, where I live, the physical relief is... Mauna Kea is 13,700. We live at the base of this volcano called Hualalai, which is 7,800. And then Mauna Loa is the same island, 13,005. Hmm. And they're massive heat sinks. And they also interact with upper-level winds to draw down, because the wind gets faster as you go aloft in Earth's atmosphere. And they interact with those higher winds and colder temperatures, and they funnel down these winds. But then the other challenging thing about Hawaii for as a sailing, because bear in mind that there are zero bare boat charter businesses here. You cannot rent a boat in Hawaii and go overnight with it on your own. Like you can't, you can't do it because it's just too challenging around here. So there's the business doesn't exist, and you compare that to the Caribbean where. You've got hundreds, maybe even close to a thousand different bareboat charter companies, you know, when you consider all the individual ones. It's kind of telling just in that modern statistic alone. Yeah. I, I'm getting spoiled in Hawaii because when I go to an anchorage here, I'm the only one. On this last trip we were at, uh, which was 10 days, every single anchorage we were in, we were the only boat anchored in that location. And now, because I got back to the Caribbean a couple times, and you anchor and there's like mm, 50 to 100 plus boats in an anchorage, maybe 200 boats in some locations, everyone ferrying in and out to the beach bar. Whereas here, you're on the fringe of humpback whales, pilot whales, various species of shark, other pelagic fish, you know, there's swordfish jumping out of the water. An interesting mix also of coral and lava, uh, steep topography, black sand beaches, green beaches, beaches of quartz, beaches of calcium carbonate, all mixed in. And you're the only one in there and you've anchored. And of course, 
here as they should be. They're very much against anchoring on coral. It's the environmental perspective in Hawaii is unlike any other place I've been. Hawaii respects its environment to a very high degree. And if you anchor on coral, you're going to get busted and you're going to get a big ticket. You don't do it. And plus, it's just bad to do anyway. So when you wind up on an anchorage here, you're the only one there. You've had to immerse yourself in very complex weather. And your oyster is just unlike any other place that you can fly to in a jet plane and get on a boat. It's amazing. What have been the unique challenges that have surprised you about sailing in Hawaii and running a charter business in Hawaii? The number one is the permitting. To get this operation that I have now, you need commercial operation permits, and they are fixed. You can't just go to the Department of Land and Natural Resources and say, hey, look, I want a permit to run a charter business because they're not issuing anymore, which is neat because instead of having a flood of them here like you do in the U.S. Virgin Islands, you have enough charter companies to sustain the tourism business and so that the operators can actually earn a living without being you know, flooded in high competition. So the limiting on the permits is, is one of the things. So to get this permit, I actually had to buy a Hawaiian corporation which held permits, both a slip permit because the slips in, on Big Island have a 10-year waiting list. Wow. And, yeah. And I needed access to a slip. And then I also needed the commercial operator license. And those go for quite a pretty shiny new penny. They're not cheap. That was the biggest barrier to entry into running the operation here. The second would be how challenging the weather is. And it's neat for me to be in this situation because I have several decades of sailing experience and other industry-related sailing experience in terms of operating and building boats. But to take that mid-lifetime experience in my career and apply it to a new and challenging place is really up to my game. It's taken my, my awareness and my perspective on operating a vessel safely and reliably and allowed me to cohesively put together the methods I'm using to, to do that and translate those methods to other people so they can learn them in a systematic way at a very high level. Tell us a little bit about, you touched on this earlier, but tell us a little bit about your theory and, and, and the way that you go about teaching those who come sailing with you. Yes. For me, it's I view it as I'm a coach. It's not about me at all, or it's not actually supposed to be about me, the experience on the boat. And I believe in small groups. Now, small groups for me, honestly, is one to two people is what I work with at a time. I don't believe I am as effective with transferring the knowledge to someone when I have more than two people. Three is a pretty good number. I've done four. I find myself being a bit more of a lecturer when I have four people and less about what the person is. So I start there. Very, very personalized information and then it's exciting for me to take my entire background and I, I parse out from my knowledge what the person needs at the time rather than forcing them to go through a specific outline on the water there's home study which is very different but when you're on the water outlined courses are a waste of time in my opinion because 
there is a collection of things a certain person needs and you can't productize a on the water experience. You need to let somebody delve into it when and where and how they want and being a coach, knowing how far you should or can push someone to achieve that next level. Because coaching is one of those things where if you give somebody what they want all the time, they might not achieve their potential. So you find how far you can take somebody to that next level and challenge them so that they can become a more safe, I guess, so they can just achieve their potential. That's really interesting because a lot of that, it sounds like, is assessment on your part as to where that individual is in their own process of learning sailing. Absolutely. And it's so different for everyone. Some folks will touch the tiller and they instantly can get a boat in the groove and they don't even know what the leech or a leech telltale is just by simply grabbing the boat, providing it to them in a scenario where the sails are actually trimmed and letting them experience that groove, which they've achieved on their own without a single word of from me and letting them evolve from that. And then I can observe, Oh, that's a serious talent they have. And then I can slowly draw out for them. Oh, this is how it relates to the principles of physics. Not all at once, but little by little, so that by the end, they've got the components they need to safely pilot the boat and maybe achieve a higher appreciation for the sport. Uh, it's a very subtle thing. I never took a coaching class. It's something that I think I do well because of how much I care about people who come sailing with me. I want it to be all about them. I really want them to succeed in life. That's just a goal I have. I mean, it might sound cheesy or untrue, but for me it is. That's that's what I want. I want the best for people. How many people have followed you, have been sailing with you first in the Virgins and then in Hawaii? Oh, I've had some come out already. I think I've run 10 expeditions in Hawaii so far, which is pretty good for a year already. And more and more people are talking about uh, coming out here. Usually people are booking with me, oh, six months out, sometimes a year out, just because of how their schedules work. And it's something that we we actually uh, talk about up until the days that we go sailing together. I answer questions and uh, give them reading material and things while we wait. Um, but yeah, I think more and more people will come out here. Tell us a little bit about the trip from the Caribbean to Hawaii. Did you have people, uh, students sailing with you on that passage as well? I did. I was fortunate enough to, um, to sell every spot to help offset the cost of moving here, but also to provide some hands-on experience in, in what that could be like. Everything from weather to logistical governmental processes. Um, and then also people were super open with their hearts and sincerely wanted to help me out financially by booking those trips. So we did it in six legs and I really am so grateful that people paid to, to join to be part of all that. And I believe they all got something out of it. And were any of the legs more memorable than others for you? Mm. They were all super memorable in different ways. Governmentally, the most complicated was uh, getting in and out of Costa Rica, which I only had five days to do. 
and then getting in and out of Mexico was also just, just an insane process. All the while this is going on, I was still trying to get paid from my insurance claim for rebuilding Solstice because I rebuilt Solstice on only the money I had in the bank account. And when I was in Acapulco, for example, I was getting ready to depart Acapulco for Cabo San Lucas and then go from Cabo to Hawaii. My family is in Ireland. My wife and kids are in Ireland. And I'm sitting there in Acapulco and I'm almost broke. I got like almost no money left after all of this going on. And I still got to get out to Hawaii and get the whole, I don't even own a car, a place to live in Hawaii, nothing. And uh, I'm on the phone with the insurance company. I'm like, so when's this money coming? Because uh, I've done everything. The boat's sailing. It's operating. It's been surveyed. I've fulfilled every requirement asked of me in the process of filing this claim. Why is it that I don't have my cash? I remember sitting there at the Acapulco Yacht Club, Club de Ates Acapulco. <laughs> it, was a, so it was a morning. And I'm on Skype with, with this guy in Antigua who was responsible for surveying the boat. And he was representing a company that was underwritten at Loins of London. And I cried because I had almost no money left and I still had to, this, this operation. I didn't realize it at the time, but I think they record those conversations and it was played back to the right person because literally the next day I got my settlement money, which is not, wasn't a huge amount of money, but it meant I could keep going. <laughs> that was a uh, touch and go there. Yeah, that was a very memorable time. There were a few other, I speak Spanish fairly well because I grew up in Puerto Rico and I did the entire process of clearing in and out of the countries in Costa Rica and Mexico without hiring an agent. And I was going, driving around with taxi guys to, you see, if I had a month to do it, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But I had people who had paid money to hit these legs, and I got yeah. to clear into a country and clear out of a country, and it's very complicated. The Caribbean is a breeze. They're so used to boats moving in and out of it. They've got it down. That bureaucratic process works super. But those processes in, in those Central America countries I mentioned were highly, highly complicated. There's not a clear-cut procedure on how to do it, so I had to figure it out on the way, speak in Spanish, write in Spanish, go into banks going to this office. I even went to the Harbor Master's house in in uh, Punta Arenas, Costa Rica, to get his signature on something, literally to his house, to get his signature on something, to leave the day before Easter vacation. Wow. It was just insane. And then we got to go to sea and deal with everything that's out there. So, <laughs> Yeah, uh, at sea, did you hit anything that you had to deal with that was surprising? things. We were in the uh, Bahia de Tehuantepec, it's off of Mexico and the tropical wind that comes from the east blows from the Caribbean side over the landmass, the isthmus there in Mexico. And, and it heats up and it convex, all the air convects there. And by the time the, the, that weather gets into Bahia de Tehuantepec, you wind up getting gales and severe lightning storms. A lot of the blogs tell you that people are hit by lightning in that location. And I've been in lightning storms before, and I'd say that one was the worst. Uh, the lightning was just insane uh, all around us, just blasting. It, incidentally, the Bahia de Tehuantepec and the Azuero Peninsula, which is a little further south, those are the genesis of hurricanes or low-pressure systems in the Pacific Ocean. 
you can see why. The, just like the Sahara Desert is sort of the genesis for many of the Atlantic hurricanes, that's where they all begin. And I remember coming out of Chiapas, Mexico, headed up to uh, Acapulco. That first night out, we got stuck in a, in a blast. I mean, it was very windy. Uh, we wound up four reaching and some high breeze and just lightning flying over the head and hitting the water all around us. And uh, luckily, we didn't get blasted. That's what the ocean, that's what Neptune wants to do to you, I guess. <laughs> yeah. As a father, myself of two young children, I was intrigued to read that uh, you always think of your kids when the weather takes a turn for the worse offshore. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that, about thinking of your family, but also sailing with your family. Yeah. Well, I probably speak for many, 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 many people, most of us. And it's just a sentiment we probably all have, but the love we have for our children is is insane generally so uh and that that's true for me as well and i think about their their future i want them to have the best success and happiness that they can have in life and so when i'm offshore i want to make sure i can get back and and provide that for them weighing out the the risks evaluating the risks of being at sea yet that's what i do uh, as a passion and as a profession so I have to do that safely, but I'm always drawn back and many people are the same would be drawn back to the family and just, you know, thinking about that. I'm looking at my backpack right now and in it is a blue elephant that my daughter gave me when I left the house. And the other one is like a velociraptor that my son gave me and I'm pulling them out of my backpack right now. And the, every time I go somewhere, they give me each an item, I stick in a backpack, and it comes with me. I don't know why they want to do that, but it comes along. And balancing that risk out, when I'm out there in the really extreme weather, uh, like I just recently was, you start wondering, you know, should I do this again? You know, as the, as the wind howls through the rigging and, and you consider all the things that could go wrong and you try to preempt all that. I think the success in it is trying to preempt it rather than just letting it happen. And the success isn't being aware of it. And so, you know, it fuels my, my spirit. It provides the impetus for me to, to do better and get home for sure. So uh, I, I react proactively to everything, both the team and the boat, to, to improve the odds of, of a successful passage because I don't really want to be drifting around at sea for a while. I'd rather just sail it and get, get home. Yet this is the hard part for me is why, like, I used to sit behind a desk. I made maps for a long time. I was 70 hours a week sitting behind a desk making maps. And I worked for other corporations dealing with the various political problems you get in a large corporate group with shareholders and all that. And, and I look at what else I could do to stimulate my mind as a human being, my own self-responsibility. And I take the risks to sail because doing those alternatives in life, I've already seen what and tasted what they're like, and I do not want to return to that scenario. Um, and I'm thankful, and I try to forge ahead 
by being true to myself and seeking the things that I want to do, but also get home. And if I just, if I gave all this up and sat at home, I would not be Paul Exner anymore. I, I don't know what I'd do. Uh, I just, I don't know who I would be. I don't know what that looks like. I'm feeling that I'm doing my life's work right now, but it's driven me to be safer and also be true to myself. That's wonderful. To be able to say that you're true to yourself, I can't imagine anything that's, that's more important. I think if we all uh, exhibit kindness to one another, because that's collectively we need that as human beings in society. And within, within that, there's totally ways that being true to ourselves, we can also interact with each other. And that's like in a, a utopian society, which exists a lot on sailboats for a brief period of time. And uh, it can exist. And it's, it's all, it, it is possible. It definitely stands, stems from um, kindness, I believe, though. And having a, a balance. Uh, I think when I was younger, I wasn't able to, to balance it as well as I can now being a bit more mature and having children. I think children matured me a lot. Uh, I, I encourage everyone to, um, to make a plan, make a plan for their life. And it can't be a day plan, although we got to act day to day, but it needs to be some kind of a life goal, whatever it might be. If I'm in a mountain, get in a sailboat, you know, doing better at work or improving your family life, whatever it might be, or all of them, and actively pursue those every day. We can't do everything, but if we can pick one to five things and just focus on those, be true to ourselves and be kind to other people at the same time, I think most of us really do aim for that anyway. But No, and we're all striving for that, so I think the reminder is good. Um, yeah. You talk about that balance, uh, thinking about your kids when you're offshore. Do you go sailing as a family? We do go sailing as a family. And my attitude about it is that um, the boat is not a place for me to insert my life on other people. I hope my family and kids want to get into it. And they do. They're always like, Daddy, take me on the boat. Daddy, take me on the boat. But I don't want to do it where it freaks them out. Keeping a family balance where where everybody feels safe and creative. My attitude about it is it is the time will always come. I don't want to insert my beliefs on somebody else really ever give somebody advice and it's well given advice, but I wouldn't have force it on them. And the same thing is true with my family. So when we go sailing, you know, we're concerned that, uh, that we get home and everybody gets home. Like we don't live aboard the boat full time. The boat is ready to sail at a moment's notice and then we live ashore. So I take the boat, take everybody sailing, but we want to be safe, make sure everybody's having a good time. And that's the, the big part of it. I think we probably spend more time aboard the boat when it's in its slip. I don't have aspirations to make my children Olympic sailors or charter skippers or anything like that. I purely want them to get on the boat and see what they like. So they're into like raising winches and then we turn the winches into cranes and we start moving sail bags around or lifting buckets of water and pretend like my kids will say, Hey, Joey just fell in the water. Let's get him out. So we're doing like make believe rescue operations and stuff like that. <laughs> That's great. You were saying before that you thought 
sailing was good for children. Talk a little more about that. Yeah, a boat is a thing they can get aboard that's unlike a playground or unlike school. It's a different thing. A boat is very different than a car or an RV or anything. And it's a magical place because they get to crawl in the cabins. And kids like to see how you know a four-cabin looks. They feel safe. They like to play with all these new, unique things, and they can expand their minds. And that would go the same for a dinghy, you know, all these different pieces of equipment. And then if they take to it and they can steer the boat, steer it, trim a sail, capsize it, get wet. Sometimes they just want to fall in the water and swim, and they actually don't even care about trimming a sail. And they're not even imagining that they're going to go home for dinner. All they're purely thinking about is, this is fun water to jump in and make-believe, and I'm safe, and I'm a kid. So letting them play with that is is just great. Um, Then there's when they get a little older and they know – what responsibility means there's the aspects of caring for the boat folding the sails putting it in a certain place preparing your rigging and then looking at the weather and you can just you can guide a nice empathetic way of of sailing a boat especially with the crew but then also a technical aspect of it um, and then of course being a captain or a skipper is is a nice leadership role to be in so i think sailing helps to develop some leadership awareness whether they lead or follow they understand how that's supposed to work as a team. Even though sometimes sailing is not a team-oriented sport, I do believe it teaches an awareness of of whole and accomplishment in, in ways that maybe other vehicles might not do for kids. Uh, so I, I think sailing is awesome. It doesn't have to be expensive, though. One of the main arguments now for children is, oh, it's so expensive. It doesn't have to be. You can get a, a small dinghy and put it on a trailer and get the same experience out of it as if you had a very expensive sailboat that you stuck in a slip or went around the world on. But just getting kids to touch is great. So, Paul, people who are interested in coming and sailing in Hawaii, having that unique experience that's much different than sailing San Francisco Bay or elsewhere on the California coast, where do they find you? You can find me at www.moderngeographic.com or you can find me at Facebook. Uh, at Paul Exner, uh, and then there's also a Modern Geographic Sailing Facebook page. And you're and located I, um, in the harbor there in, in Kona. Yes, yes. So Solstice is is kept at the Honokohau Harbor uh, on the west coast of Big Island, uh, just north of the Kailua Kona downtown area. Uh, there's lovely places to from every price range to, to be able to stay in Kailua Kona. And it's, it's, it's just a phenomenal Harbor. I mean, I, we have, there's a tiger shark that swims through here. We get <laughs> rays, we get turtles. I mean, literally there's a tiger shark swimming by here the other day and everybody knows it. And they said, Oh, that's the, that's the baby. Wait, till you see the mom. So it's a, it's a super, it is right off the ocean. People are catching big fish right outside every day. It's just, it's the access to big water. It's amazing. Uh, well, I know Lauren and I would love to come sailing with you at some point there. Next time we get to Hawaii, we'll we'll knock on the hull. <laughs> You're welcome. Anytime you let me know, I would love to have you guys take you guys out. Awesome. It'd be awesome. Hey, Paul, thanks so much. Good luck with the business. And um, I'm excited. I'm excited for this next chapter. Cool. I'm excited for you too with this, with the podcast you're doing and, and everything you got going on. So um, I, I really thank you for, 
for asking really cool questions oh, and getting yeah. me involved with it. Yeah, it, you, you kind of got me talking about a few things that I probably wouldn't have thought of for a few months or maybe ever. So that was super cool. Thank right. you. That's the point. That's the point. That wraps up this week's episode. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Thanks for listening. And until next week, smooth sailing. Smooth sailing.